The urges of human nature are like fire. They can either cook your food or burn your house down. Is evil perceived consistently across people? Or should the situation, culture, and individual psychology have a say in its characterization? And does this help define what is evil? Welcome to season two, episode four of the Evolve Faster podcast. I'm Scott Ely. Evil urges, the fiery duality of human nature. The doctor checked his pulse. Although he squeezed his eyes shut, the boy burned hot with the energy of a troubled soldier preparing to charge into war. Dr. Payne spoke with the tone of a caring grandfather. Are you ready, son? He rested his hand on the boy's head to ease the blow of the words. The doctor couldn't overlook the irony of his wrinkled arm next to the youthful skin on the boy's forehead. Life just wasn't fair. I, I believe I'm ready, Dr. Payne. Try to relax, son. Even God would tell you to be as informal or rude as you want right now. Clutching the bedsheets, the boy cracked a smile. He looked unsure if anything was okay at this moment. I'll try, he replied, his face returning to its baseline. It was a look that always seemed to be holding back a scream of being tortured from within. I just want the pain to end. It's weird, Doc. I feel pain, but I don't even know in what part of my body. Is that normal? Soon, it will no longer matter, the doctor replied, taking tools from the bag instead of weighing down the boy with more unacceptable medical reasons for his suffering. Shall we start? Veins stuck out of the boy's neck as he gripped the bedsheets at the implication of the question. It was a reply of desperation the doctor knew all too well. Dr. Payne focused on the syringes so the fear in the room wouldn't tighten its grip onto him as well. I'll tell you a little secret. Dr. Payne spoke as if they were old friends at a bar having a drink. For you, it's the first time, but for me, I've done this countless times, and this will be my last one. I can assure you the only thing you'll feel is the pain disappearing. There was something about this combination of thoughts that always comforted people. The boy visibly slackened as the rigid tension melted away from his body. The doctor wiped away tears from the boy's cheek so hot they made his skin tingle. Two syringes later, Dr. Payne sat alone. With the curtains blocking most of the afternoon sun, dust particles danced in slow motion in the rays that broke through the sheer shades. It was strange how comfortable he was these days in a small room with a lifeless body. It hadn't always been this way. Looking at the boy's face, he thought aloud. It's hard to believe I wasn't much older than you when I took my first steps down this path. With the thought, he gazed at the scar jetting out from beneath both sides of his watch like tentacles. His first wasn't nearly as easy or clean as the two syringes, and he had had no pre-rehearsed words to calm that patient. He brushed off the feeling that the recollection felt more like a murder than a euthanasia. Back then, liver spots from decades of sun exposure didn't cover his skin, and he spoke with a voice full of life instead of an old man's rasp. 
but deep wrinkles like a dried riverbed carved the scaffolding of a permanent smile on his face, which had been free of cynicism for many years. He laughed at the watch. What a fail. There was a time when he hoped to hide the scar, but he learned the hard way there was no way to hide memories of fire and blood. The sound of a calendar event beeped from his smart device. Adjusting it to arm's length so he could read the screen, he told the now empty room, one last act before my curtains close. Happy travel, son. I also need to be on my way. Goodbye. The sun burned down, bathing the shaded streets of the neighborhood in diffused light. Exiting the house, the heat felt good on his face, and he paused to enjoy the moment. Appreciating the little things in life had been so difficult when he was younger. The perspective of his career changed all that. Perhaps in this final act, he could pass along some of that wisdom. But he knew it wouldn't be simple when most of society referred to him as the Reaper. Michael Fleming wiped the sweat running down his forehead. Although in a normal bathroom, it felt like he was locked in a sauna. Michael chanted a mantra to his reflection in the mirror. This will make things right. This will make things right. Michael snatched his papers off the sink as if making sure they couldn't run away. Ironically, there was no way he could escape what was on those pages, even if they did. His questions and notes were seared into his brain after countless revisions. Was the doctor sweating as well? The Reaper, Michael muttered. Quite a nickname for an old man. He couldn't help but wonder if the guy's grandchildren knew what people called their gramps and why. A sharp knock startled him. Michael, five minutes. The hologram arrays are ready and Dr. Payne is waiting, his producer announced through the door. Yes, yes, I know. He's been alive for 70 years. He can surely handle a few more minutes. Michael washed his face one last time and rubbed damp hands across his diminishing hairline. Not likely to grow back before the cameras roll, he said, forcing a smile. Time to stop stalling. This will make things right. His footfalls echoed on the marble as he tried to remember the path back through the maze of antique paintings and heavy velvet drapes. He heard a door creak somewhere ahead in another part of the house. These old Victorian houses really were the stuff of horror movies and something you rarely saw anymore. Perhaps Dr. Payne slept in an upright coffin in the basement. Who knows, Michael thought. I might need to put a stake in his heart to end the interview. Now that would make for some must-see TV. For a moment, at least, the weight on his conscience was lifted by the thoughts, however ridiculous. Opening the living room door, bright lights shattered his calm as it took a few seconds for his eyes to adjust. Dr. Theodore Payne was sitting comfortably in a chair in front of a gothic stone fireplace. The leather was dark and the broad back was formidable. Two full glasses of water rested on a table, alongside an expensive-looking lighter and a pipe. Hello, Michael, Dr. Payne said. We all began to worry you weren't coming. Walking towards the chair opposite the doctor, Michael shot a cross look at his assistant. Jeff, can you dim these goddamn lights? We're doing an interview, not a fashion photo shoot. 
He also made it clear in the look that he wasn't happy with his chair, which was both smaller and shorter. Michael barked a few more demands about the production setup, hoping that the attempt at seizing the authority didn't look as overt as it felt. Dr. Payne continued to smile and waited. It both calmed and irritated Michael that the good doctor seemed indifferent to his fabricated drama. Dr. Payne stretched out his hand for a handshake. Feeling cornered by the authenticity of the gesture, Michael returned his hand. How are you doing, Michael? Dr. Payne said. It's good to finally meet you in person. Michael stumbled, but finally replied, uh, Likewise, doctor. Thanks for making the time. Turning to his assistant to disrupt the handshake, he said, Are we ready to go, Jeff? Getting a confirmation nod from the assistant, the arrays of hologram cameras focused on the odd couple in the middle, capturing the virtual stream for later distribution across the world. Michael turned back to Dr. Payne. I'm here today with Dr. Theodore Payne. How are you today, doctor? I'm fine, thank you. It was nice of you to accept to do the interview at my house. At my age, moving around becomes quite cumbersome. Michael mentally scanned his notes for something that would sting, hoping to disarm the genuine feel of Dr. Payne's appreciation. He didn't need audience empathy creeping in this early. The man was far more charismatic and likable than he'd hoped. He decided to hit what he'd rehearsed as his checkmate opener. Although your name is Theodore Payne, he needled, many like to call you the Reaper. Some even sarcastically call you God. How would you like me to address you during this interview? I think my surname is dramatic enough, don't you? Besides, as someone who spent their life ending people's suffering, being the creator of this world is neither a role I'd enjoy nor something I'd be very proud of. Michael shot a glance at some of his crew who seemed to enjoy the Reaper's quick wit. He continued, So Dr. Payne will suffice. Besides, Michael, you know all these nicknames are nothing more than media idiocy. Kind of silly anyway, since Dr. Death was already taken, don't you think? No one loves a sequel. As he tried to recover, Michael forced a cough and tried to make it look as if something really important was buried in his notes before continuing. So, Dr. Payne, if you don't mind, I'd like to skip trivial questions and get straight to the point. Is that okay? Yes, I agree. Two trivial questions is more than enough. I'm sure there's a lot to cover. Dr. Payne, Michael started. As far as my research tells me, so far you've performed over a thousand euthanasias. How is that 1,103, Michael, Payne interjected. Apologies for the interruption. I assume people would like to have a precise number. It's my life's work, and I've invested much into each case. None were taken lightly, so the number is close at hand for me. Please continue. Michael stuttered to restart. Uh, okay, thank you. You've performed 1,103 euthanasias that border the line of legality. Can you describe how does it feel to have so many souls on your conscience, not to mention the countless grieving friends and family? Michael's heart beat so rapidly that he worried the tiny microphone in the shape of a silver button attached to his chest might pick it up. The doctor looked at the ceiling as if searching for the answer there, leaving Michael to cope with this feeling not unlike a sudden caffeine rush. Finally, 
pain released him and said, Michael, I'm sure you know that euthanasia is illegal in most, but not all, U.S. states. But my lawyers have never asked me to turn down a case I presented to them, and I'm clearly not in jail. My actions were legitimate, and I'd argue should be universally available to all people. They should be an extension of healthcare, which, sadly, also isn't universal in this country. To this end, I haven't even required payment from a significant number of patients in need of my help. Many people in great pain don't have the luxury of time or money. Many people with serious illnesses who are limited by laws and money attempt, oftentimes unsuccessfully, to end their lives in horrible ways. So instead of dying in peace, they spend hours in pain and agony by their own hand, causing ripple effects of suffering across their network of loved ones. My contribution to the world was to help those in need to overcome these ridiculous societal limits and get what they need, an end to their pain and a peaceful death on their terms. Pain paused because even Michael realized he was now hanging on his every word. Then he finished by saying, so when you ask me, how do I live with myself? The answer is simple. When I get into bed every night, I turn off the lights and fall asleep. Michael acted unaffected by the measured reply to the question. Without a plan B, he defaulted to the follow-up question he'd practiced. So you welcome with open arms anyone who knocks on your door and says, I want to die? Would you perform euthanasia on me right now if I asked you so? I do have the money. Of course not. Payne replied with a chuckle. We're not kids exchanging baseball cards. Michael realized the doctor was letting him off the hook for the off-color question, laughing to imply it had been tongue-in-cheek. He continued, My process was thorough and professional. There are many interviews I did with each patient and the family before I even considered euthanasia as an option. And, of course, thorough medical analysis. My work wasn't broadly in sync with the laws of society, but I can assure you it's in perfect sync with the laws of life and death. And those laws, Michael, those laws are immutable. Michael had to keep digging. He reminded himself, this will fix everything. But he could feel his mind weakening on the mantra as the counter-argument surfaced beyond his control. But what if it doesn't? He shifted in his chair, then continued, if everything you're saying is correct, doctor, why do you think so many people consider you to be the pure embodiment of evil? During my research, I've never read so many negative comments and articles about a single person. You don't take the bulk of society's opinions seriously? Payne replied without hesitation. Michael, society has been lynching me for most of my life. I came to realize that few can understand the depth of pain someone and their loved ones is going through to resort to calling me for help. It's a level of desperation no one should ever have to face. So yes, many of the 300 million people in this country will judge my work and my patient's pain with callous unwittingly because they can't possibly understand. On the other hand, if you include extended loved ones, maybe only a few thousand people will judge this work as next to godliness. But you tell me, Michael, who carries more weight 
and the right to judge my deeds, the 300 million who are in no way connected to what I've done, or the few thousand mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, and close friends who have cherished the solution I've provided to their collective suffering. As a journalist, I'm sure you remember my ex-wife's case from decades ago, which was sensationalized in the press. One child's life was traded to help hundreds of other people. Is a person evil who helped so many if the consequences were a baby dying? Not according to the courts in her case. Michael could no longer avoid reaching for the water provided by Dr. Payne. He needed the cover and time to think. Payne let him off the hook again by continuing, even though Michael was clearly like a fighter boxed into a corner. To assure you my case isn't one of self-delusion or a God complex, Michael, I will also let other people answer the question. The people, in fact, who have the only valid right to an opinion. Dr. Payne signaled to his assistant, a woman in her 30s, holding a thin, transparent device. She whispered something to the show's producer, and a monitor in between Michael and Dr. Payne came alive. Michael's cheeks flushed red as he failed to make eye contact with the producer. He'd agreed to Payne being able to introduce audio and video content, of course, but the producer hadn't warned him Payne had actually set up the feed. He wanted to hurl the water glass into the fireplace, but there was no time to change course, and all he could do was try not to react. On the monitor, a middle-aged couple was thanking Dr. Payne for helping to end the suffering of their terminally ill daughter. Then there was a clip of the daughter hugging Dr. Payne with tears rolling down her face. Next, a burn victim and his family. Next, a child with late-stage leukemia. Next, an elderly man with Lou Gehrig's disease. And the next, and the next. Michael lost count of how many videos rolled by. The video was professionally shot and edited with succinct effectiveness. Though less than 10 minutes had passed, watching the footage roll by felt like being dragged behind a car for hours on a gravel road. When the video ended, Payne continued fanning the flames left behind by the visuals by saying, so to address the specific wording of your question, evil? Well, to me, it's clear that evil would have been to deny these people the help they needed, Michael. Michael felt the interview slipping away. He spent the next 30 minutes trying to recover from the impact of the videos. But every angle he attempted led back to the same dead end. All of Michael's preconceptions about the evil he'd easily find here were incorrect. Payne asked for a bathroom break, and Michael nearly leapt at the opportunity. Perhaps he'd go find a stake to send this interview off to eternity alongside his career. Fifteen minutes later, the hologram cameras began to roll again. The walk back through the maze-like halls generated no ideas and no stakes on which to impale himself. So Michael decided to go off script since his rehearsed path thus far had been a colossal failure. Perhaps if he could just get pain talking, he might slip up. He began slowly, stumbling upon his every word like a drunkard. So you mentioned Dr. Death, which was the nickname given to Jack Kevorkian, who went to jail for the crimes you commit. 
How is the reaper above the law when Dr. Death was not? Dr. Payne's laughter felt like a needle stinging into the flesh under Michael's nails with each reply. Well, first of all, we're no longer in the 1990s, Michael. It's 2029. And secondly, that's a misleading question. But I'll tell you what I know about this man who had the same calling as me. One major difference is that Kevorkian built a contraption enabling patients to administer themselves with the lethal dose. For me, this wouldn't do. I've always been the one to do the hard part on behalf of my patients. And I also did all my own research on every case. It's just too important to trust anyone but myself to confirm the facts leading to either someone's continued life or purposeful death. Michael stuck to his strategy to get him talking, so he simply nodded. Payne continued, and I have to say, it's interesting to see a person die. Sometimes in that last second of their life, it's as if an invisible mask is removed from them and they see reality for the first time. You can almost feel the weight and pain of life being lifted from their consciousness. Michael didn't know where Payne was going with this, so he asked, well, where do you think they go? To heaven? Payne replied, that's the fascinating part. When I do the procedures, sometimes I feel as if they truly move on to a new place and are leaving to make room for someone who's yet to come. This may surprise you since you know I'm not a religious man, but I do feel as if there's something behind the veil. With those words, he moved his arm through the air as if pulling back a curtain. But all Michael could see was the scar seared across Payne's wrist, like a flame cutting through the dark. He felt wobbly at the sight of it, yet he continued riffing at the old doctor. He measured his next words with care. Do you mind me asking how you got that scar? It looks like it came from a serious burn. Payne adjusted his watch to mask the scar, but came up short. He looked up again, and then after some time, replied with a question of his own. Since we're getting personal, Michael, there's something I was wondering about you as well. You were once a renowned journalist, but lately I've hardly heard your name mentioned. Why is that, Michael? Michael felt like he was locked in a sauna again with his body temperature rising. He replied too fast to sound natural. My career isn't the topic, Dr. Payne. The topic is you, the Reaper, who murdered over a thousand people. That's in an entire small village. He'd never stammered even once when practicing that line. Why now? Payne looked at him before replying. Come on, Michael. You saw the videos. I've shared my story, so I don't think it's unfair to ask about yours. After all, that's partially why we're here, isn't it? To revive your career? I understand. Drastic situations require drastic actions. I've been in those shoes. But the deaths at my hands were desired by the recipients. Unfortunately, your drastic action a few years ago resulted in the death of nine innocent people who didn't want to die. If I'm not mistaken, the murderer quoted the title of your article before burning down a mosque. Michael squirmed in his chair and tried to change the subject. Again, Dr. Payne, your upper pay grade of journalist, Payne interrupted, doesn't normally write incendiary clickbait titles like that, Michael. What caused that level of desperation? Michael stammered. 
that that was a mistake. I I mean, it was an honest mistake. It was. But pain interrupted again. Michael, please, it's you who needs to be honest. I know many will find my job to be out of sync with their ethics, but I've come to find that most people's sense of morality is entirely inconsistent with other things they claim to believe when the rubber hits the road. And I can live with that because I also know that when forced into the situation my patients have been forced into, their formal judgmental interpretations of right and wrong break down rapidly. Pain and suffering have that effect on reality. Michael tried to speak, but came up short. So pain continued. We are all prone to evil because it's baked into our evolutionary psychology to compete and dominate over others. Even after all this time, we are still baboons throwing our feces at one another to show our dominance as if it will help us to survive. That deep wiring evolved into a competitive tribal ego and an innate desire to best everyone. Is evil selected for in evolution because the tribe who had the dark intent to wipe out competitive tribes was more likely to survive? And this begs the question, without ego and evil, would we have made such progress? So then, wouldn't you agree that evil is determined by intent? I can say with certainty, I've never made a mistake, and it was always my intent to ease the suffering of people who wanted their pain to end. For every one of my patients, I always made 100% sure they were qualified to die, so to speak. Although it's not difficult for me to take someone's life, I've never done so lightly. Can you say the same for your intent with that headline, Michael? But I also understand I'm lucky since I don't have to fight the competition as journalists do. It's all about whose story is more sensational these days, so you do what you have to do to get clicks. Although my patient's time is always running low, the only deadline I have to contend with is death itself. It took every bit of Michael's will to maintain a poker face. He wanted to scream. He wanted to hide. He wanted out of this chair and out of this interview. Payne was calm, composed, and had no notes to help him navigate these wildfires burning all around this conversation. But even though Michael felt as if he'd been set aflame, Payne's tone changed abruptly, and he was like the loving grandfather once again. Was all that just to get his attention? Payne appeared to choose his words carefully as he removed his watch. Let's stop playing games. We both know why you're actually here. You asked me about my scar, but you already know that story. Fire can do two things, Michael. It can cook your food and keep you alive, or it can burn everything you hold dear to the ground. Michael worried again about the microphone picking up his heartbeat as pain reached into his pocket. He handed across a weathered military portrait to Michael as he said, I don't have this photo in my pocket as a trophy. I keep it as a reminder of the purpose of my life's work. His hands shook as he held the photo of his father and he struggled to hold back tears. Payne looked him in the eye, then continued, let me tell you the real story of what happened to your dad, Michael. I was in a truck with your dad heading to get medical supplies from the next closest encampment. The area was not supposed to be hostile, 
so we were alone. I remember it as if it were yesterday. We were talking about the first food we would eat when we got back home. Your dad said Luigi's Pizza in your hometown, and then it all went haywire. I must have been thrown from the truck because when I came to, I was staring back at the road. The truck was on fire and although I could hear your dad, I couldn't see him. I'll never forget your dad's screams as they slowly filtered in under the ringing in my ears from the explosion. I was relatively unharmed, but your dad, pain stopped and took a deep breath. His whole body was heavily burned. I stepped around the crater caused by the roadside bomb and I was able to pull him away from the fire, but it was way too late, Michael. His clothes had mostly burned off his body and his flesh, pain trailed off. It looked to Michael as if he wouldn't be able to go on. But after composing himself, he said, he was begging me to end his life, Michael. He wouldn't live to see another day. It all came down to how long would he suffer? Another minute, another hour, maybe a full day, if he even lived long enough for someone to figure out we'd gone missing and send help. And we had nothing with us, hardly even a proper bandage, let alone morphine. It was the hardest decision of my life, but I assure you, Michael, it only took one swipe of the knife for him to be free. But in the process, I got this to remind me of that day. Pain massaged his scar as if it still burned. I wasn't even thinking when I grabbed the knife off his belt. Of course, it was scorching hot, and I both burned and cut myself trying to finish the job. Standing up abruptly, members of Michael's staff made a step forward, clearly worried he might lunge at pain. But Michael just stared him down and then walked out of the room. Payne called after him. I barely knew your father, Michael, but he seemed like a good man. He wanted to die. He needed to die, Michael, and it set me on a path to helping hundreds of people. But Michael was already halfway down the hall as the words trailed off. Michael let his body fall on the couch. He was exhausted. The sitting room attached to the bathroom in which he'd started his day was brighter than the rest of the house, but the heavy decor brought him no comfort. It made him want to sleep. He wanted to forget about pain, his career, his dad, all of it. He pulled out the photo of his dad, remembering the pain when he had found out. It dragged on for weeks as the media further sensationalized what was already plenty sensational. The fact was the fire or the burns hadn't killed his father. Theodore Payne killed his father. Michael recalled reading the news. He'd find satisfaction in every word of criticism, wanting to burn Payne at the stake. But Michael's desire to bring him down was never extinguished. The military decided his actions were questionable and gave Payne a dishonorable discharge to appease the media fury. But his mother, for some reason, refused to press charges. God damn it, Michael yelled, kicking the chair off its legs onto the ground. But giving in to the anger only made him feel like more of an idiot. Michael jumped when his phone rang, dropping the photo. He didn't recognize the number, but answered it anyway. Any distraction was welcome right now to derail this unhealthy train of thought. Michael's voice croaked as he said, Hello? 
As he held the phone and listened, Michael straightened up on the couch. His head whirled around looking for his notepad, but notes had only failed him today. So he let go of his need for his journalistic crutch and listened. Finally, he asked, how quickly can you get this over to me? When Michael hung up the phone, he paced the room. About 20 minutes later, Michael's assistant knocked on the door. Uh, Michael, do you want to continue the interview? Michael felt blood returning to his face, the warm shock resetting his body. Finally, he answered, Yes, thank you, I'm coming. As he made himself look presentable, he said to the man in the mirror, Now this will make things right. Are you okay, Michael? I hope you can forgive me for what happened earlier. I was out of line for bringing up your career troubles. But I chose you to tell my story because I hoped it might help your career. And pain almost trailed off, then continued. And I wanted to, no, I needed to talk to you about your dad. In over a thousand patients I've helped, your dad is the only one whose inner circle I didn't get to confer with about his choice to die. It always bothered me. Mr. Payne, Michael replied, purposely not calling him doctor. My personal life is no longer on the table for discussion. Just as Michael waved his hand to signal to roll the cameras, Dr. Payne continued. Why do you think I agreed to do the interview with you? I had my choice of media outlets. The Reaper retiring and offering only one in-depth interview holds the power of enormous sensationalism in today's media. Clickbait titles guaranteed. But I chose you. Can you see that? He was about to answer when something caught his eye. His producer was pointing furiously at the monitor between them. We've got him, he thought. Michael paused, his face conflicted. Finally, he said, I'd like us to continue what we came here to discuss, Dr. Payne. When was the last time you performed euthanasia? It was a bit more than a month ago, Payne said, not expecting Michael to return to cold, journalistic questions. He was a terminally ill young man. The monitor flashed to life. In the video was the boy in the room with the curtains drawn, still very much alive. Then the video cut to Payne interviewing the boy's mother. But unlike all of the other videos, this one had a somber feel. It was roughly edited. This one hadn't made the cut to be produced for marketing use. The crying mother constantly hinted at how she wasn't sure if her son was ready to die. Michael waved to the producer to have the video stopped. It paused right on Dr. Payne's face, a bad frame in which the doctor looked angry. The Dr. Payne in the video was not as calm as the Dr. Payne watching the video. Michael let the image sink in and then said, it's obvious how this video feels completely different than the other ones you showed me earlier. Why is that? Not looking as shocked as Michael hoped, Payne replied. Yes, the kid was in an incredible amount of pain. It was all that much harder for him seeing his mother suffer. I made the mistake of interviewing the mother too early. Michael pressed on. Two days before you performed his euthanasia, you received an email from the boy's mother, correct? Dr. Payne looked up and thought, then replied, Yes, I believe it was the usual email I get from concerned relatives, 
having doubts about the euthanasia. But you see, by that late stage, we'd already finished research and signed contracts. So although I completely understand what they're feeling, I had to stick to my procedure. Unfortunately, facts are more reliable than emotions. Confusion raged in Michael. He was expecting Dr. Payne to start shaking by now. But instead, the old doctor seemed as composed as when the interview started. Could this guy really be so full of himself, Michael thought? Maybe he is pure evil. Michael continued, What I have here are the results from the psychiatric hospital. These are the same files the mother emailed you just two days before you performed euthanasia on her son. This time, Dr. Payne looked shocked. He cocked his head to the right as he said, Hospital results? I don't know what you're referring to, Michael. He had late-stage bone cancer. He was not in any kind of psychiatric ward. Unable to tell if Payne was bluffing, Michael replied, Dr. Payne, the results clearly say the boy was suffering from severe depression and couldn't be held accountable for his decisions. Yet you decided to perform the euthanasia anyway without getting the mother's full permission. Fear flushed over Dr. Payne's face as he reached forward to look at the documents in Michael's outstretched hand. Flipping the pages back and forth multiple times, Dr. Payne dropped the pages onto his lap and rubbed the burn scar. How could I miss it? He said in a raised voice. No, this must be wrong. I'm afraid not, Dr. Payne. You can see the timestamp on the email. Your email. Payne muttered under his breath. I've always made sure 100% they wanted to die. No, that they need to die. I, I've never missed something like this before. Michael wanted to celebrate, but his heart rate raced again. It didn't feel right. He tried to push away the feeling by asking for a confession. Come on, doctor, it's over. You know what you did. Yes, Michael, I, I can see it now, but I still don't know how it happened. I just... The doctor sat in the chair in silence, looking down at the scar as he rubbed it. Wanting to take back the medical documents as a sign of victory, Michael approached the doctor, but as he looked pain in the eye, he was reminded of the day he found out what happened as a result of his article. It was the same look he'd seen in the mirror. Payne finally let go of the medical documents and Michael returned to his chair. After a pregnant pause, Michael finally said, your days as the Reaper are over. Payne took several deep, heavy breaths before he spoke. Michael, I've been doing this for 50 years and I stand behind every death. From the first one, he paused to look at Michael, then continued, from the first one to the last one. Ironic, I was planning for this interview to be my farewell, but not like this. I was burned on the first one and the last one. Holding the medical documents, Michael's initial excitement of catching his father's murderer evaporated like a drop of water thrown into a fire. Michael's mind raced. Was one honest mistake enough to burn a man who helped so many? Is anyone genuinely good or evil? Or does everyone fall somewhere in between? Was he right that his intent was always good and mine was bad? Do we have an inclination to misunderstand 
or purposely misinterpret our evil thoughts? Perhaps we have them as a means to understanding the difference between what you should do and what you could do. A sort of mental relativity, perhaps, in the same way you can't understand happy without first knowing sadness? Michael shook off his thoughts and reached for the table as if in slow motion. The lighter was heavier than expected, but the weight was enough to make it sit comfortably in his hand. Michael set the medical records alight as the doctor looked on in confusion. He tossed them into the fireplace as the flames took hold, a trail of ashes floating onto the thick oriental rug in its wake. The smell singed Michael's nostrils and he reviled at the thought of what Payne's arm had smelled like when he'd killed his father. You're playing with fire, Michael, Dr. Payne said. That's not going to ease the pain of that family I harmed or change anything. I will face my own day of reckoning. You don't have to do that. Michael looked back at the doctor. I know, Michael said, and you didn't have to euthanize my father when he needed you either, but you did. The Evolve Faster podcast is written, produced, and performed by Scott Ely. Many episodes are also co-written with the help of Antonio Rosich. It takes an enormous effort to produce all the quality, original content needed for this podcast. Your support would be greatly appreciated, and you can learn about multiple ways to do so by going to evolvefaster.com forward slash subscribe. Here you'll find direct links to review and give the podcast five stars on key platforms like iTunes and share it on social media. These are free to do, but are critical to audience growth. And the only way to find out about new seasons is to register your email, so please do so. You will only receive valuable content and information on upcoming seasons and products. And finally, if you're benefiting from the Evolve Faster podcast, direct financial support at whatever amount you can afford is important for our survival. Running ads on a channel for free-thinking content is an inherent conflict of interest. So if you want the podcast content to remain unhindered by commercial interests and stay edgy and raw, then direct support is the best and only path to content independence. Also, writing and production of each episode of the Evolve Faster podcast is a major undertaking spanning many months. It's a labor of love, but it does need your help to survive. So please consider becoming a subscriber at evolvefaster.com forward slash subscribe. Your help and support are greatly appreciated and are what makes this podcast possible. Isn't it time for an upgrade? It's time to evolve faster.